Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, everybody. This is uh, Season 2, Episode 29, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. Um, I am at the Simply Jesus Gathering in the Vail Valley of Colorado. I'm sitting here with special guest Jay Pavick. Uh, we're sitting literally on like the uh, the front of a uh, you know like the what do you call this? The, it's not really a porch when you have a ranch. It's called it's probably has a special name, but it is this wide porch with rocking chairs, and we're looking at a thunderstorm coming across the valley over these mountains. You can't believe how beautiful it is. Sorry, you're not here, <laughs> but we are. We're enjoying all this, and uh, this month we're talking about relationships. And uh, in just a second, I'll have. Jay uh, introduce himself and give some of his background, but with uh, relationships, there there is no sort of more central part of life, and also more central part of life that we've screwed up uh, in such significant ways. So uh, relationships are a lifeblood to us, but why do we have so much trouble having healthy ones? So we're going to explore that relative to Jesus um, today. So Jay. If if you wouldn't mind saying hello and and uh, giving a little bit of your uh, background and from point A to B to C for you, sure. Yeah, uh, I'm Jay Pathic. Uh, I'm I'm married. I have two girls, thirteen and ten, Jasmine and Sophia, and we live in Denver, Colorado. Actually, technically Arvada, Colorado, Northwest. I grew. I went to Arvada West. Did you uh, really? I did. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, you, well, I'm not far from. I, I'm actually next to Pomona High School. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Our hated enemies. I'm yes. just having bile rise up in me even yeah. as you say the yeah. name. So, people, yeah. people hate winners. So, <laughs> so anyway, I uh, went to the Ohio State University. No, why, why, why do, why do they say the Ohio State University? Because I always wondered. It's amazing. That. Oh, I you see. Just put a the next to things that you need to. Right. You know, and everybody, everybody gets the memo about that. The. But, yeah. D, Ohio State. That's yeah. right. You do. It's a D, Ohio State University. <laughs> so I grew up there. Grew up in uh, Columbus. And then uh, we moved to Arvada, uh, the 911, <laughs> uh, to, to make sure that's pronounced. And uh, yeah, and we moved to help start a church in Arvada. So we moved with 10 people, and I got a job waiting tables and went through parties and got to know people. and slowly but surely built a church that's now called the Mile High Vineyard. There's four churches and we're a family of neighborhood churches, what we say. So what does that mean that you you show up in Denver and you throw parties and you get to know people? What what exactly does that look like? Well everybody well I don't know, maybe not everybody. Most everybody's been to a party. So we invite people we're working with, people who are neighbors and friends. We have food and drink and we hang out. That's it, and you know that there were only ten of us. So, but everybody's got jobs. Everybody's got neighbors. So we throw a party, and one of the main questions we were asking is like, "Hey, we're not from here, but we are here because we want to be a part of whatever Jesus is doing here." If you were to tell us, what do you think God is doing, and what do you think God wants to do here? What is that? So we can just be a part of that. And that's what we did. 
And how did people answer a question like that? They couldn't usually. I mean, usually it's kind of like, uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, they don't have any kind of relationship with God necessarily or sure who Jesus is. And so then that necessitates the follow, the reciprocal question of like, why would you do that? Why would you move from Ohio to do that? And we had some very specific reasons. We felt very clearly that God asked us to move to Arvada, not to Denver, not to Boulder, not to just Colorado, but to Arvada. Hmm. And so that enabled us to tell a story of how we'd seen God do things in the past, like in the church we were in Columbus, and that we thought he cared about people and places, and that that's the kind of thing Jesus was up to, being with people, present with people, bringing life and hope and freedom. And that necessitates a whole series of other conversations, and then slowly a number of those people started to crash into life with Jesus. So, well, And then on and on it goes. So let me ask, uh, for most people thinking about what you just described doing, mm -hmm. moving to a new city, um, getting jobs, uh, uh, starting relationships, that whole thing is sort of founded on um, building a healthy foundation of relationships to feed into this thing that you're hoping to plant. Mm -hmm. How, and for most people, that would be incredibly intimidating to think, I'm going to this new place and everything depends on me, sort of, in, in me and the 10, mm -hmm. uh, building healthy relationships. Uh, what in your past strengthened you or prepared you to do that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, part of it is I don't think I was raised in church. So I didn't have any kind of a church background. So when I came into church, I didn't come into church seeing the church as a place of education. Hmm. I didn't come to church thinking as a religious institution. I didn't come to church thinking it's a duty. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so I, a lot of that baggage people have when they're raised in church, just yeah. I didn't have. Immediately, I found church as a place that, like, helped me be around people that were following Jesus and could help me follow Jesus better. So, so some of it's I just had a, a different kind of clean look at what church was and is. So, I mean, sure, there were some weird things, like somebody teaches and there's some music and stuff. So Some of that was weird. But what I really enjoyed was being with people. So I was in a small group and more people come and then start another small group. And So none of that stuff ever felt like an obligation to me. Hmm. I experienced it as life because I had no background. So, and you're implying that, that people that ha sort of have grown up in the church see it in these uh, ways that you've described yeah, as an educational sort of institution and mm -hmm. and uh, a, a place where you go to learn rules yep. and things like that. And you are, it sounds like your entry point in the church was, was primarily relational. Yep, almost entirely because I had an encounter with God in my room alone at night. And then I started to make friends. It was actually friends I played basketball with. So they showed me what it was like to live with Jesus just by living. And then they're like, hey, there's this Bible study thing. And it was like, oh, this is great. There's like a place we talk about how to live following Jesus. Yeah, what a gift. And I can even remember some of the guys being like, oh, man, I don't want to go to Bible study tonight. And I would just think, why not? <laughs> like, this is amazing. Like, what else What else are you going to do? Watch TV or something? You know, what, what, there's nothing else to do. So for me, and, and, and no, so because of that, I also never felt like it had to look a certain way. So for me, having the party felt like a place where we were engaging in life with Jesus with each other and with people that don't know or follow Jesus, which, by the way, 
Jesus did. Uh, there aren't a ton of Bible studies in the ministry of Jesus, but there are a ton of parties. Hmm. Like if you take the parties out of the Gospels, you strip the Gospels. Hmm. And you get the impression Jesus liked hanging out with people. All the ministry did happen, a lot of it happened, on the way to a party or leaving a party. So what does this tell you about, I mean, we spend a lot of time in this podcast uh, exploring the heart of Jesus. We, we, we use a phrase, we explore the heart of Jesus, not his recipes. Mm -hmm. Uh, because we so fundamentally default to, oh, Jesus said this, let's pull out the three applicable things we can from this instead of first understanding the heart that yeah. expressed these things in the yeah. first place because it's the heart that we attach to. So the heart behind this, that Jesus loved to have parties, and if you take out parties, you take out a good part of the gospel. What does that tell you about his heart? I think he just liked being with people. And he enjoyed having fun. I mean, like, if we're people that love and follow Jesus, we should be having as much fun as anyone alive. Because if you believe just the small thoughts about Jesus, like that I'm loved and I'm forgiven, and I don't have to pretend with God or with anybody, that makes for a, a deep form of relationship that also allows you to just play around a little bit, to laugh at yourself and laugh with people. And, you know, people love uh, yeah, just the, a couple of things you've said uh, about so it could it could be difficult for people who have grown up in the church, for instance, yes. to accept the fact that parties were such a big part of what Jesus' life was like. But even more difficult would be to imagine Jesus as a fun-loving person. Yeah. So how, how do you uh, come to grips with what is assumed to be a sort of a perpetually serious, intense, even stern sometimes way of engaging people versus what your experience in, in Christian community has been like? That's a really good question. I, and I, again, part of my unique, bizarre way of coming into this thing is I didn't have another thought. So I didn't have like, I guess we're supposed to behave right now kind of thing. And so I would just engage people deeply because I was being deeply engaged by Jesus. So I would just ask questions because I didn't know anything. I was ignorant. So I would just say, Man, how do you pray? How do you do this? And people would just be like, oh, wow, why is this guy asking questions like that? Or I would say things like, man, I still feel really guilty or fearful or alone. Help me. And often people just look at me blankly like, oh, this is way deeper than it's supposed to be in Bible study. But it's because that's, I knew I was there to learn from people about how to follow Jesus. And so I think probably, um, for me, I would read the Gospels with that in my mind. And Jesus seemed to engage people deeply and quickly because he cared about them. Um, and he would ask real questions. Yeah. By the way, uh, a party is just unloaded yeah. right next to us. Yeah. A party of zip liners yeah. is just coming back from <laughs> zip lining across a canyon. Yeah. So they're all noise. Yeah, they're full of life because, of course, they just risked their life. Yeah, they thought they were going to die. Yeah, they thought they were going to die. So, yeah. so that, when you think about um, the ways in which we read Jesus in the Bible, which is a primary way we come to know his heart, mm -hmm. and we sort of read him extracting any other emotion but severe and serious, yes. do you find yourself reading these stories and, um, like, I, I, I uh, in my previous uh recording with Conrad for this previous podcast we talked about how what would how would it change 
the meaning of what Jesus said to his people, like Thomas, for instance, if we if we said, well, what if he said that with a, when he was smiling or laughing yeah. instead of serious? Do you ever do that when you are reading Jesus in the Bible? Do you ever uh, kind of imagine him differently than we're we're supposed to? Yeah, I, I've. I've always seen Jesus as really relaxed. I think if you can just have that one thought in your mind, it changes a lot of the Gospels. I mean, I'm borrowing a little bit from somebody I really admire named Dallas Willard, who said if you were to define one thing that would make what it would be like to be with Jesus, it would be relaxed. And you see that all through the Gospels. You never get the sense he's in a hurry or that he's uptight, or that someone else can pressure him. People around him are freaking out, like page after page, and he's not. He feels no need to try to fix anything very quickly. And I don't know about you, but when I'm relaxed, I tend to also, you know, see things uh, in a way that's more humorous. It's almost like humor and being relaxed go together. And uptight people don't laugh very much. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, or when you're laughing, it's also hard to be uptight. Yeah, and you get you get these little stories of him kind of playing around with his guys as they're walking along the road, like, "Hey, what are you guys, what are you guys talking about back there?" And what they were talking about was really intense and uptight, like who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Yeah, and instead of him like confronting him, making him this intense, what are, you, what are you guys talking about back there? Yeah, there's all if you see those interactions where Jesus is really relaxed, and maybe even a little playful at times, it shifts then the way that we begin to engage Jesus. Yeah. In time of prayer, or with friends. Or... But even in that relaxed way, he can be intense. Like he's he's really relaxed, but he's looking at people asking deep questions. Yeah. So the podcast listeners, who at least those who have been with us for a long time, have heard me talk about a book called The Failure of Nerve by Edwin Friedman. One of my Ford. favorite books that has ever been written. It's a, it's a life-changing book. It is. The most life-changing book that is not a Christian book that I've read. I agree. You could probably make a case that you wish you could talk to Edwin Friedman and see where he was coming from. He was he was a Jew, mm-hmm. so who knows what he was up to, but his his phrase in that book was that we bring our non-anxious presence That's exactly into right. these relational situations, and it's catalytic. It it changes the environment. It's what really it's so so past um, uh, a leader's words or strategies. It's the presence you bring into that situation that really makes a difference. And no doubt. That's what I hear you describing is is Jesus bringing his non-anxious presence into these situations entirely. Well, I I, I thought a lot. About the fact that decades from now, no one will remember anything I said, hmm. but they'll remember what it was like to be with me. Yeah, love that. And I, I think that's true. Like when you think about people who've had a big impact on your life, maybe it's a grandfather, an uncle, a teacher, you often strain to remember the words. Like I think they said this once or twice. Yeah. Maybe it sounded like that. But you know what you remember? What it was like. Yeah. What it felt like. And and by the way, if you like Friedman's work. There's a woman named Roberta Gilbert, hmm. who was out of Harvard, that took on some of that systems theory. She wrote five books. She's kind of the expert in systems theory, alive now. She's at Harvard. Hmm. She wrote five books. I read all of these books. And they talk about non-anxious presence and being differentiated and yet really engaged and caring about people. I discovered at the end of reading the five books that they were actually training for chaplains. 
but I didn't know that. So she wow. wrote it for her. In the last chapter, some of the last pages of the fifth book, she says, and the most differentiated person who ever lived was Jesus. Huh. And then does this little essay on how Jesus was non-anxious, fully present, fully engaged, and that that allowed him to truly love people well. So maybe you could describe a little bit for uh, I'm I'm well well aware of what differentiated means and it's it's a powerful word. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you could explain a little bit about what you mean by that. Yeah. Well, well, it, sometimes it's helpful to to understand what a word means by what the opposite means. So undifferentiated means I don't know how I feel or what I think without knowing what you feel and what you think. It's like a cell that doesn't have an intact membrane. You know, it's like dependent on the other cells to figure out what it is. And cells that operate like that in your body, we call cancer cells. They're not clear about their function. So they start either reproducing too fast or they steal life from other, other cells. And, and cancer kills people. In the same way, undifferentiated people hurt the people around them. We can see this in parenting, right? Like, we have a crisis as parents when our kids grow up and they leave home because we have to ask ourselves, who am I without them? Yeah. I've defined myself as a parent. Can I be another kind of human? Who am I? And you see kids do the same thing as well, right? Am I what? What am I without my mom, without my dad, without their influence? Can I think and feel for myself? You see this in marriages. We become inter, become codependent would be another way of saying something that's not differentiated. Because we say, I can't feel okay unless you feel okay. Yeah. If you help me to feel okay. Yeah. I don't know what to think unless you tell me what to think. Yeah. And so leadership is being differentiated. I know what I think. I know what I feel. And yet, that doesn't mean I'm separated from you. I'm really connected. All that thinking and feeling pulls me toward you. So I'm not cut off. I'm not isolated. I take all that clarity and I exert it on behalf of the whole to help everybody get clear about who they are and what they do. And you said, and I couldn't agree more, that uh, Jesus is the most differentiated person who ever lived. Yes. But what is the evidence of that? Well, people are always trying to tell them what to think and feel. It's <laughs> constant. Like every page, if you read with this lens, Disciples walk up and say, do you not understand you're making the Pharisees angry? You're saying the wrong things. And he just goes, that's okay. They're allowed to be angry. <laughs> They're allowed to feel what they feel. But their feeling agitates the disciples. They can't imagine. Jesus, do you not understand that your, your mother and your brothers aren't really happy about what you're doing? Right now? He's like, that's okay. They're allowed to be upset. And that's okay. Mark 9, he shows up from the Transfiguration. There's this ruckus around uh, this the boy who's demonized. And he says he just walks in the middle and goes, so what's going on? <laughs> he just engages. And he is so full of peace and strength that the anxiety doesn't affect him. He affects the anxiety. Yeah. His peace overflows. I think the most powerful picture is when they're all hiding in the room after he died and rose again. And they're like, what are we going to do? We're, what they did to him, they're going to do to us. He says he walks through the walls in this anxious meeting where they're just making stuff up. And he says, peace be with you. And I don't know how you imagine that moment, but I don't think he's just saying it. I think he's literally like exuding it into the room. And I'm sure we've all had people that are like that in our life. Like, 
they walk in the room and everybody just kind of takes a deep breath and their shoulders relax a little. And that's who Jesus was. He would step into, now also he would agitate those who felt really calm in ways they needed to be agitated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the Pharisees felt really calm about who they were and what they were doing, but it was messed up. Yeah. So when he walked in the room, it would stir everything up. Yeah. So he, uh, to use the great line of Spurgeon, he afflicts the comfortable and he comforts the afflicted. Yeah. And that's what differentiation does. And that's what Jesus does. Page after page of the Gospels, if you read how he interacts, he disorients that which is set and clear and clean, but not healthy. Yeah, that's good. And then he brings freedom to that which is anxious. So uh, kind of a surface understanding of what you're saying can sound like uh, if you're a differentiated person, you're also not a compassionate person. It can. And I've, I've written and talked a little bit about uh, I'm trying to re-examine the role of empathy mm -hmm. in our relationships because in my own relationship with Jesus, I've seen so much growth and love expressed through me that was not empathetic. Mm -hmm. It was, it sort of set aside my comfort and what I wanted so that something greater could happen in me. Mm -hmm. And so I now say something that kind of makes people kind of tilt their head at me, that empathy is overrated in relatively speaking. And, and it's so open to being misinterpreted, yes. just as Jesus is open to being misinterpreted here, that he's differentiated. Yes. So you mentioned part of this that I think is like a super important key, that you, you're staying connected mm -hmm. as you're differentiated. So mm -hmm. what does that mean? How can you do both of those things at the same time? That's right. So what, what it means is I'm with you, talking to you. Uh, I feel what I feel. And you're allowed to feel something different, and I'm not running away. So, like, if we would if we'd use an example of Jesus, one of my favorite stories for this is the rich young ruler that shows up, mm. looks at Jesus, says, you know, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus, you know, they have a little dialogue. It says, and he goes, well, you know, I've done all this. You know, and that's crazy. Of course he's not done all that, but whatever. So he's a pretty, pretty self-assured, gutsy guy. Yeah. And the next verse is fascinating. It says, and Jesus looked at him and loved him. Mm. Now, what we would think if he loved him is the next thing he does is says something kind of soft and mushy and, oh, you know, you're great or whatever. The next line is, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Cuts him open. Mm. Because the love he has for him requires that he tell him the truth. Yeah, I love that. It requires that he say, you know what, man, this isn't good. I'm concerned about this. You think you know what you're doing and you don't. So I'm going to ask something radically sacrificial to you so that you can get opened up freely. And then it says, and the man walked away sad. And again, we would think to really love someone, Jesus should chase after him and go, you know, I don't, I don't really mean everything. And, you know, like he would start trying yeah. to soothe it and calm it. Yeah, I feel really bad that you feel bad now. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's yeah. right. No such thing. Yeah. Very next verse says that the disciples are like, and then, oh, and then he shouts out as the man's walking away, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Ooh. It's like a dart thrown from Ooh. afar. <laughs> yeah, and the guy's like, gosh, you already cut you're, <laughs> you're throwing darts at me as I walk away. And the disciples pick up on this. They're, they're like, man, this is rough. What do we... What is this, Jesus? You know, what is this? 
And and Jesus kind of just keeps on explaining and doesn't chase after him. Doesn't feel because that was love mm. for that man. Mm-hmm. And love, I agree with you. Love has gotten this kind of squishy, overly sentimental um, understanding in our culture because we have been we bought into the idea of romance as being the highest form of love. Mm. I mean, the highest form of love that Jesus embodies, which is truly being connected to people with truth, but totally connected. Jesus came full of grace and truth, says John, John 1. So not half truth, half, you know, it's like full of both. Yeah. And we can't get that right all the time, honestly. I'm sure even those listening right now, it's, it's true for me. There's places I'm really full of truth and not so full of grace. Yeah. There's places I'm really full of grace and I'm not so full of truth. Mm. And Jesus embodies that in a way that we go, man, could I be like that? Jesus, be formed in me. I'm going to be like you. Yeah, I think you, I love what you just said about uh, that romance is seen as the highest form of love, and yeah. it really isn't. And, and, and my experience in my own story and my experience of Jesus in the story of the Bible is that his love is transformational, yes. which sounds great, except if you're the one being transformed, yeah. which takes leverage. Um, yeah, it's like clay getting smacked around on a wheel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you've ever watched someone make a pot, I mean, that's using an analogy from the scriptures, but it's not a, it's not like a gentle procedure. Yeah, there's smacking, slapping, cooking, and, and how does this translate then into our own relationships? And it's really two yeah. questions I'm asking. That one is, so we, if we know these things about Jesus and we experience His heart in this way. How does that seep into our own being so that it translates from what we appreciate and or even worship about him into who we become? Yeah. How, how does that happen? And then what does this look like to build or grow or nurture a community that looks like that? Those well, two questions there. Well, what's f- the only thing that would be fair to say is I'm trying to do that and figure that out. But what I can say in looking at the life of Jesus and what I've experienced of him is that whatever we're talking about here was obviously really important to him. Hmm. This wasn't an, a tertiary issue. This wasn't like a, you know, I'm going to teach really well. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to do miracles. And, you know, uh, you know, and if I hang around with some people along the way, that that's probably helpful. <laughs> that's not exhibited in the life of Jesus. What's exhibited in the life of Jesus is the relationships he has with these men and the encounters he has with people are of supreme importance. He values them highly. Um, you see that all through the Gospels. He's very intentional about choosing people, calling them away with him, walking along with them, bringing them along in everything he does. The level of just relational attention that Jesus gives is off the charts. Right? And, and then he would pull away, be alone for periods of time, but relationships were central. And I love asking this to good pastor types. Because I love asking, where did Jesus say he finished the work in the Gospels? Hmm. And what do we do now? Where did Jesus say he finished the work? Finish the work. It's an interesting I phrase. Yeah. I've done the work. I've finished it. Oh, he, he finished the work of 
living out what his father asked him to with people. And when did, where does he say that? He says it toward the end. Yeah. Um, when he's telling him he's going away. That's exactly right. You know, you know, I've asked tons of people that. What they normally say is on the cross to tell us I finished the work. The, the job is finished, right? Yeah. There's a time before the cross. John 17 is yep. what you're grasping yeah. for where he says, Father, I've taken those that you've given to me and I have finished the work in them so that through them, so that through them, the world might know who you are and that I have been sent from you and that I am in you and you are in me. Yeah. So what he says is crazy. He says, everything I've been doing, everything I've been doing was so that these few men would be able then to do that with others. So listen how crazy this project is. Jesus is saying, I'm betting the whole farm on the relationships that I've had with these men and that they then will form that with others. And he's, and he's saying it in the context of, hey gang, here's why it's good I'm going. I know I'm, I right. sound crazy here, but here's why it's good I'm going. There's an advocate coming. That's right. Who will enable you. That's right. And he will continue to be with you, as I am, but you got to keep doing this thing. And what you see when you look at the Gospels, or you look at even church history, is as much as people went and preached and kind of did the kind of things Jesus did, they also built relationships, which I think is what we call church. <laughs> that's what that is. They weren't just planting little teaching centers. They weren't just creating like a little healing area. It was inherently communal, like life together, but the love of God was expressed sideways. And this is all the one another's of Paul's letters, right? He doesn't just keep telling them, preach and do good things and try to behave, but serve one another, love one another, care for one another, encourage one another. There's hundreds of one another's. So the expectation of the early followers of Jesus was that this was inherently relational. Yeah. Like it isn't just behaving a certain way. Yeah, yeah. And, and Jesus says that, that directly there in John 17, and then he exhibits it all through the Gospels. And so, so for me, um, what's tempting to do as a pastor is get stuck in thinking about, like, how do we teach the right stuff, or can we get the building the right way, or whatever. And so, some of that makes sense. I get it. I mean, you're trying to facilitate the kind of relationships and people you have. But if at the center of it isn't the way I'm living life with others, and we're living life together, Whatever it is, it isn't the ministry of Jesus. That's really good. And it, given what you've just said, we know anyone who's had any kind of long-term experience or even short-term experience with the church knows that that uh, relationships are like the nuclear bomb yeah. uh, or a ticking time bomb in churches. And, and I've been in churches where I've had sort of this taste of intimacy and relationship, and it's extraordinary it's it's like beauty piercing through the darkness to experience intimate relationships in a church community mm. there's maybe nothing more enjoyable in the world mm. than that sense mm. of being in close vulnerable enjoyable community yeah. where you can truly be yourself and be enjoyed and enjoy others but it seems so fleeting it well, seems it's so, painful. It's the opposite sometimes, right? Oh, yeah. It's actually vicious and horrible. And well, painful. it could often turn from what I just described <laughs> yeah. into that in unexpected ways. And, yes. and then our hope seems kind of uh, knocked out at the knees yep. with this. And we think is our relationships, healthy relationships, mm -hmm. even possible over the long term. And I'm just wondering as a pastor who's, try, who's trying to do this 
in a kind of a missional way, what are some of the obstacles, hurdles, challenges you face with this? So many. So many. I mean, uh, and it's because, again, if what we're talking about here is true, this is the locus point of God engaging humans and changing the world. So it's also the locus point where the dark power of the world looks to disrupt yeah. and damage. I mean, this is why families get so damaged. So, so we should not we should not be confused by the resistance we experience. It shouldn't be unusual. I got us. I got to stop you there. It's just something I've often um, taken as self evident for myself, but then if I actually speak it out, I feel like I'm saying it's something too radical. Mm. But I often think inside. Um, that the reason so many church staffs have so many relational issues and so many um, churches split apart because of relational issues is because uh, churches are targeted and attacked at a greater degree than any other entity in our culture. Yep. Is that overstating it? No, I, I think it's true. And I think it's also true because we have such a deficiency in culture by way of relational health that when people come to church, their expectations are so high. They're so desperate for life with other people that this thing called church often is pretty disappointing hmm. it doesn't happen right away yeah it's not a microwave moment you know yeah. it's a and it turns out that churches are full of really broken people hmm. and they're led by broken people hmm. so what are some things that you've learned over the years as you've been trying to live this out that are important for building this kind of community relational intimacy atmosphere that you're hoping for what are some of the things that you've learned that are important in that well I, I don't know how many of the folks that listen would be pastors or leaders but the first thing I always say is that, that leadership creates culture so with when pastors aren't don't have deep committed friendships it's really difficult to have churches that have deep committed friendships hmm. and pastors staff leaders don't believe that Part of their primary job is to cultivate a healthy marriage, have a healthy family, and have healthy, deep friendships with others. They don't believe that's the first thing they do before you know, they preach, before they do anything else. What's interesting about that statement and kind of heartbreaking at the same time is that we know from Barna's research and others mm -hmm. that pastors are some of the loneliest people yes. in, in our society. They feel very much... Um, almost hampered in, in building relationships because of their position mm -hmm. in the church and the fact that relationships um, need vulnerability mm -hmm. to thrive and they feel compelled to not be as vulnerable with people that are in their church. So, right. so if you're saying that this kind of starts from there and it makes perfect sense that it would, um, you're in this place. So mm -hmm. how do you live and grow relationally with these same pressures on you? Well, the, the simplest thought, and this just sounds way too simple. It really does. I know I'm about to say this, and then everybody I've ever talked to goes, <laughs> it just can't be that simple. It actually is this simple. I really believe this. It really does come down to time. Hmm. Time is the most powerful commodity we have. It hmm. isn't money. It's time. Money depends on time. So time is the most powerful commodity we have. And I just think pastors have to be asking, and anybody has to be asking, does my time reflect the priorities I want to have in my life? Hmm. First and foremost, with God, do I have a way I cultivate life with Jesus? That's quiet, that's study, that's whatever it is. 
I'm not going to prescribe that to you. Everybody's different. We all need different ways that we stretch and strain and also are comforted in our own life with God. And then uh, marriage, family, and friendship. I'm just more convinced than ever that if my life with Jesus is really intimate, personally, my life with my wife is doing really well, like I feel connected to it. It doesn't mean everything's going great. I just feel connected to it. Connected even if it's painful, but we're connected. Yeah. And I'm connected to my girls. Even if it's hard, we're still connected. And if I have three or four friends that I'm deeply connected with, I literally think I'm bulletproof. Mm. And what, does that, what does that mean, bulletproof? It's just really hard for anything to disrupt me. Hmm. Now, if any of those three things isn't intact, I am very fragile. You're disruptable. Oh, I'm, and I'm fragile. Yeah. I'm fragile. I, I mean, it can be embarrassing how quickly a person can get angry, even though they are a professional Christian or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Like, all of a sudden they're angry. They're really worried. But you're describing the, uh, how a person might respond when um, they're scuba diving and they mm -hmm. suddenly realize the oxygen tank is empty yeah, and they right. can't suck any more oxygen out yeah. of that tank, they they get agitated and mm -hmm. panicky and reactive yes. because of that. So that's what you're describing when that is not there. It, and, and it's the kind of thing that does require investment of time and cultivation. And, and then all the other stuff flows out of that. The bad news is when we get agitated, we try to fix everything else first. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm stressed, so I'm probably going to have the right job. Or if I could just get the raise. If I just get through this period of time, then, you know, things aren't going to be as busy and I'll be able to do the thing. Or I can't wait for the vacation or whatever. Yeah. Whatever little game we play, <laughs> that once I get through this thing, it yeah. will be different. It's always, it's a myth. Hmm. It always goes back to starting back at the center. Yeah. Am I, do I, do I really have a sense of I'm connected in life with God? If you're married with your spouse with my family, with a few very close friends that are walking with me, they, they, they're with me, we're going along together. If you don't have that, anything else you're doing is flighty. You know, what's interesting is that the podcast listeners and the friends and people I work with know that um, one source of frustration I am for them in their life is that I've chosen for a long time not to have a smartphone mm. and I get a lot of pressure about that because it makes life inconvenient for other people in my life and mm -hmm. and I've had to I've had to persist in this in my life for some of the same reasons you're saying now because I believe that uh, some of the best things I have to offer are because I have margin in my life and um, and the reason I'm able to stay connected relationally is because I have margin in my life. That's right. And if I had something like a smartphone in my life that I wasn't able to master mm -hmm. and put boundaries around, which I suspect because I am so hyper curious and, and voracious mm -hmm. in the way that I treat outside inputs mm -hmm. into my life, I suspect for myself that it would obliterate my margins, even though I didn't don't want it to. So, I, so I don't have a smartphone, and it's not like a law or a standard that I set for everybody. But what I am saying is that um, in a in a society that is systematically removing margin yep. from us, you can't simply do nothing right. and expect that margin to magically reappear Precisely. somehow. I agree. No, I, I. It's funny you and I are similar in this because. The greatest frustration my friends have with me is I'm not accessible at any moment. 
Yeah. So like when I'm with someone, I'm with them. And by the way, I'm with people a lot. Yeah. So that means you're not available a lot. I'm not available a lot. And people get genuinely agitated. Yeah. They just go, I called you like four times right. today. And I went, I'm sorry. So my phone is set to vibrate only if my wife calls. Huh. That's it. That's interesting. And people just go, what is the deal? Said, yeah. Well, uh, you, this might not be true for you, but the phone works for me. I don't work for the phone. Yeah. So, so good. Like, I love so. it. That's that's just that's a good um, phrase to remember, yeah. because sometimes we, I, I think, our central issue as people of God is that we desperately need to remember. Mm -hmm. That's why there's so much remembering that happens in in the story of God and how how easily forgettable we are as people. Yeah. So that phrase helps us to remember what's most important and and uh, who. Who we want to be in charge yes. of all of this. That's, so I love that. Well, and even just the teaching of, you know, the Hebrew scriptures that lead all the way to the New Testament. Sabbath wasn't just about connection with God. It was about connection with your family. Hmm. So it was a way that the people were saying, no, I'm going to prioritize this by creating this space. Hmm. And Sabbath through the Hebrew scriptures is, is strangely important. It's actually odd how important it is. Hmm. Um, there aren't a lot of there aren't a lot of capital crimes in the Hebrew scriptures, but not keeping the Sabbath is one of them. Wow! You actually, have your life taken from you. Wow! If you don't obey, yeah. Or if you don't do the festivals, they were like planned parties. We require you to party. If you do not party, we will come find you where you're working, and we will take your life. From you. So like, so like, so somehow in the economy of God and the heart of God, this is really, really yeah. important. Yeah. And then Jesus, of course, is then supposed to become the new Sabbath. So in him, we live in Sabbath rest all the time, yeah. is the teaching of the writer of Hebrews. So so this isn't like a small thought. This isn't like, oh, yeah, I suppose I should probably get a, get a break yeah, yeah. here and there. Yeah. No, no, this is a way of, of living. living. Yep. And I love the, the word you use, which is margin, which is that relationships do happen in margins. So I love asking people, how much space do you have? that won't get scheduled no matter what. Yeah. And they go, I, so this sounds really bizarre, but you schedule margin. And I know it sounds like a crazy thought. You have these gaps that you're like, nothing else goes here. Yeah. I will literally wake up, walk around, and sit on my front porch, talk to a neighbor. <laughs> like, I get to do what I want to do when I wake, when I do that time. Yeah. Now, I know, I know what happens. People listen and go, well, that's great. You're a pastor. You can do that. Because yeah. you only work one day a week or whatever. <laughs> but, but the truth is, um, at any moment, there's a hundred people upset that I'm not doing exactly what they want me to do. Yeah. At least hundred. Maybe more like a thousand. Which comes back then kind of full circle to what we were talking about That's as right. far as differentiation and yes. and staying connected to people but not but not obeying the agenda that they set for you. That's right. And it makes sense, perfect sense too, even if we think about John 17 and what Jesus promises is about to happen, that the spirit, I, I'm writing a book right now called uh, Spiritual Grit, and mm. one of the chapters is called Doing Life with the Invisible Rabbi. Mm. And it's the rabbi inside who's living out this rabbi-Talmud relationship, but he's doing it from the inside out. So yeah. he's there to guide, direct, and uh, differentiate from mm -hmm. the inside out. And that's difficult to know where this boundary line is between connecting and staying differentiated without help from the inside out. That's right. 
Yeah, the governor, the judge, right? Right. He's the one saying, do this, don't do that. Right. And yeah, so it's trying to figure out, I mean, as a pastor, I'm always with our leaders and trying to get them to cultivate intentional margin. Hmm. So I'm not, as a pastor, I'm not always saying, I need you to do one more thing. Yeah. Which, trust me, there is always There's one always more thing. thing yeah. So it's not because I don't have another thing. It's because I know if they aren't cultivating that margin, that power source, that strength, will disable then everything else. So yeah, John, it's a domino effect. It, well, and it's not just John. So John 15, two chapters before yep. that, Jesus yep. says, you can do nothing apart, apart from, from me. me. Yep. It's in that intimacy. And then he flips it toward, then therefore, love each other as I've loved you. Yeah. So his assumption is, you will know my love, you'll live in it in a way that you're just totally dependent on me, and then that will force you right towards each other. Yeah, I Because you'll that. be overflowing. So then you're going to love each other, and then that will exhibit to the world what it's like to have life with Yeah, you. I really love that. Well, let's close by with this. Um, what What is something from your own um, life with Jesus that has most helped you to grow intimate with him? What What... what if you had to think about what has helped you to grow that kind of vulnerability, intimate relationship where everything begins from, what has helped you the most? It's really easy answer for me. I'm, I, and everybody's different. So some people, you know, we all have different ways we operate. Mm-hmm. But for me, I'm an activist. I do things. I make things. When I, I don't, I commit sin. You know, I don't omit. I commit. I'm doing things all the time, right? Um, so for me, the discipline that has the greatest efficacy because it is the most painful is silence huh. and solitude. Huh. It feels like I'm wasting time and the worrying of my mind mm. begins to torture me when mm. I'm silent. Mm-hmm. So with silent and solitude, there's the great tradition known as centering prayer. Mm-hmm. The power of getting still. Yeah. Now, I'm sure, no, listen, I think if you live in America, no matter what your temperament, the thought of being still, like truly still. It's anathema. Oh, it just, it's its actually pretty painful for most Americans. Yeah. Be quiet, be still, and as your mind whirs, sometimes the way you get things out of your mind is you write it down. So I'll have a sheet of paper, I'll just write things down to force it from my mind out my hand. Yeah. And it's on the page. Yeah. Now, when I first started to try and practice this, it literally felt like someone was lighting me on fire. I'm not kidding. I would be 20 minutes in, I would feel like I'm on fire. Because all this stuff that was hidden starts to surface. It comes yeah. in layers. So the first layer is like, you forgot to get so-and-so a birthday gift. Yeah. Email, so-and-so. It would be stuff like so All the leftover thoughts that have been That's right. Yeah. So I'm writing those down. And so it's forming a to-do list, which starts to create pressure, but whatever. Once that kind of empties, then some some emotions have been lingering start to show up. Mm. I think he felt kind of hurt by that conversation yesterday. You know, the fact that so-and-so didn't remember it was your birthday, that actually hurt. That, that was disappointing. You know what, thing? That made you angry. Mm-hmm. You felt sad over here. You felt, you know, this other thing. That was really joyful and wonderful, and you didn't allow that to take hold. So all these emotions start to... So I have to kind of dump those out my hand. Mm. And then if I can get through all that, I might hear the voice of God. Yeah. Because he's underneath all that. Yeah. I love that. You know, I used to um, go every month to have it, what, what we call in our church a day away with the Lord. Uh, in the, on that church, uh, anyone on staff and any of the elders 
uh, a, a friend of mine, Bob Krulish, on staff, arranged for any of us that wanted to do this to go down to Colorado Springs, an hour south of where we were, to a, I want to say monastery, but it's it's not. It's a convent down in Colorado Springs where you can be in a room alone in their convent for the whole day. And um, Bob first invited me into this, and then it became practice, and, I, and I'm... I'm well situated for this. This is not difficult for me at all mm. to do this. But I went down there with men who had no idea what they were about to get into. And yeah. I remember so many times Bob was quite shrewd about this. He didn't give men a lot of preparation. Mm. And I think he did it on purpose because they would get almost there. And he and some of the men would say, now what happens when I get here? Is there somebody that is going to be like directing what I'm doing? No, no, there's not. Well, where do I eat? Oh, you should have brought your lunch with you. Well, what do I do? Did you bring any books? Uh, well, I got the Bible, but... So it was like throwing them into the deep end. That's right. And these men had difficult days. And then we would drive back and debrief the experience. And I realized how the very thing you're saying now, that for most people, it was mostly men that were doing this because Bob was doing the inviting, but there were women that went down mm -hmm. as well. Um, for most people, this is a very challenging thing. It is. To be alone and quiet and still for that length of time. But but I, I do think that there's great leverage and great it toward intimacy yes. with Jesus when we will do this yes. somehow, some way. So the still, I resonate small with voice, it. Still, the signal and the noise, right? Like it's hard to hear the signal of Jesus in the noise. Yeah, that's good. And we wanted to. Like he's speaking in the middle of all his craziness. He's like, no, nah, I'll wait for you to get still. We'll <laughs> that's really good. <laughs> Well, uh, this has been a fantastic uh, 45 minutes spent. It just flew by for me. So That's thank great. you so much, Jay. Um, th this was uh, so important, the things that we were talking about today, because relationships really do make up the, the deepest parts of satisfaction that we have in life. And uh, there there is a kind of love that is higher than romance. Mm -hmm. And it is lived out in these kinds of relationships where they're deeply sustaining and, mm -hmm. and nourishing for us. So we will um, continue on in this quest this month um, looking at relationships. If you want to find out more information about anything that we've talked about, uh, of course, go to JesusCenteredLife.com. You can uh, find the podcast section on that page and look for Season 2, Episode 29. And uh, we'll put some links for some of the things that Jay has talked about, he's mentioned some books and other authors here. We want to make sure that you can easily find those, so we'll get those linked up for you. And uh, just remember, this this podcast is called Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. That's what we do here. And, and our intent is to find his heart, um, because that's what we're going to be ruined by. And so through all of this, just remember, this is the focus of, of what this community is about in the end. So um, we're so grateful that you're along for the ride. For those of you who are would like to more closely connect in community, um, because you resonate with, what, with these conversations, we have a private Facebook page called The Pigs. If you don't know what that means, uh, there's a little description that you'll get when you get invited into this group. So all you have to do is Go on to uh, our podcast page. There's a little button there that says, please, I want to be a part of the pigs. And uh, you'll that'll come to me or Becky or somebody, and we'll uh, get you in there. And you can participate in this uh, growing community. So 
please do do that. So again, this is a, a podcast brought to you by Life Tree. We'll see you again next week.